enthusiasm to obey you together. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, you can open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. This is going to be our jumping off point. We're doing a four-part mini-series leading into the fall, and then we're going to start the book of Romans in September. But Matthew 28 is going to be the text of Scripture that kind of holds these four weeks together. So Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20, we'll begin by reading it. Here's what it says. The eleven disciples traveled to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped, but some doubted. Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I'm with you always to the end of the age. My family and I recently, we've been reading The Hobbit by J.R.R. Tolkien. If you're not familiar with this book, it is the prequel to the Lord of the Rings series. And the story centers around a hobbit named Bilbo Baggins, who accompanies 13 dwarves on a perilous journey through Middle-earth to the Lonely Mountain. They have to travel hundreds of miles to the Lonely Mountain where a dragon has taken their home and stolen all their wealth. And along the way, they're being led by a great and powerful wizard named Gandalf. And Gandalf is awesome. Gandalf has magical powers. He like rescues them out of all of these dangerous situations. He's incredibly wise. He's their leader. He tells them what to do. And there comes a point in the story where they're entering probably the most dangerous part of their journey. They're going into the evil forest of Mirkwood, and Gandalf tells the dwarves and the hobbit, it's time for him to leave. They have to go the rest of the way on their own. And of course, they're not very excited about this, but he leaves them with some final instructions. And there's several things, but the main thing that he emphasizes over and over and over is, do not leave the path. You're going into this dark, dangerous forest. It's going to be hundreds of miles to get to the other side. You're going to be in there days and weeks. And no matter what happens, don't leave the path. He tells them like four or five times. There's this scene where he's riding away on his white horse. They can barely see him across the plain. And he stops and he turns around and he yells. They can barely hear him. He says, don't leave the path. All this tension built into the story. And of course... You can guess what happens next <laughs> when they go into Mirkwood. But that part of the story reminds me so much of this scene in Matthew 28. Except, of course, that this is real life. This really happened. And so Jesus here is giving his final instructions to his disciples in Matthew's gospel. When Jesus says this, this is after he's already been crucified. He's already risen from death. He's already appeared to all of his disciples. He's been teaching them. He's been sharing meals with them for somewhere around 40 days at this point. And here he's giving them his final instructions before he ascends back into heaven. Could you imagine being there for this moment? You've been following Jesus around for three years, and Jesus is way more awesome than Gandalf. I mean, you've, you've seen Jesus miraculously heal probably thousands of people. You've seen him command the forces of nature. You've seen him raise people from the dead. You've seen him even conquer death himself. 
This is God. This is the Son of God. You followed His leadership, and now He's leaving. How seriously would you take His instructions here? This is a really big deal. For centuries, the church has referred to Jesus' words in this passage as the Great Commission. A commission is something that you tell somebody to do. You, You commission an artist to paint a great mural. You commission an architect to come up with the plans to build a building. This is the church's commission from the Lord Jesus. And so if you want to know what the church is supposed to do, this is the place that you start. We don't have every single instruction for the church in this passage. We wouldn't need the rest of the New Testament if that was the case. So this isn't every command for the church, but this is the overarching goal for the church. And we're going to spend the next four weeks looking specifically at four practices of the church that come out of this text. This week, we're going to look at baptism. Next week, we're going to look at the Lord's Supper. Then we're going to look at church membership and the church's mission. And something I think about all the time is that as a church, there is so many things that we could give ourselves to. There are so, even when I just look around the room, and I know, I know a lot of you guys, I don't know all of you, but I know there are so many needs There is so much pressure that you're feeling in your life right now. And and then in the culture, there's there's going to be cultural pressure to do certain things and to emphasize certain things. There's going to be pressure in our local community to be involved in certain things and emphasize certain things. And so over time, there's going to be a tension we're going to be pulled in this direction, in that direction, in this thing, in that thing, and this is the most important, and this is the most important. And so the question is, over the long haul, as a church, how do we stay on the path? How do we stay on the path? How do we know what the church is supposed to do? Well, thankfully, Jesus has told us. The apostles have told us. And again, all of the commands in the Bible are important, but these are given special emphasis in this moment as Jesus prepares to ascend back into heaven. And the first thing he says is the church is to baptize. The church is to practice baptism. Verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you are astute in your reading comprehension, then you might be thinking the first thing he says is to go. He says, go and make disciples. Then he says, baptize them. And you would be correct about that. But presumably, these are disciples that he's telling to go, and they've already been baptized. And you can't make a disciple of someone who's not a Christian. So the assumption is that baptism is the entry point. Baptism is the first command to obey after a person becomes a Christian. It is a really big deal to Jesus. What you might notice, though, as well, is that there's something missing from his instruction. He says, go, make disciples, baptize them, but then he doesn't tell us anything about baptism. (laughs) He doesn't say what it is. He doesn't say what it means. He doesn't say why it's important. That's all assumed. So Jesus presumably has already taught his disciples all of that. He says, go and do it. But what we're going to do this morning is we're going to answer four questions about baptism, starting with the most basic. Number one, what is it? What is baptism? The English word baptism, it is translated from the Greek word baptizo, and it's a very straightforward word. It's a verb. It means to immerse or submerge in water. 
So to baptize something is to put it underwater. Uh, anything, anyone that you put underwater, submerge underwater, you have baptized it. Some churches will baptize with a sprinkling of water on the top of the head, but you don't find that anywhere in the Bible. The language doesn't even mean that. It means to put underneath water, to submerge, immerse in water. And this is what you see over and over in the Bible. It's not just about what the word means. It's about what we see playing out in the narrative of Scripture. So John the Baptist practiced full immersion in water. You see this in John chapter 3, verse 23, which means Jesus was baptized by full immersion in water. You can see this clearly in Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. And so as a result, the church practiced baptism by full immersion in water in the New Testament. You see this in several places, but I'll just give you one example. In Acts chapter 8, you have uh, Philip, the evangelist, part of the early church. He's traveling, and he meets an Ethiopian on the road. And the Ethiopian is part of a wealthy family. He's gotten a hold of a Jewish scroll. It is the prophet Isaiah, and he's reading it. But he's not a Jew. He's an Ethiopian. He's trying to make sense of it, which is a great opportunity if you're an evangelist. So Philip shows up. God just sort of puts this evangelistic opportunity in his lap. And so he helps explain Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, to this Ethiopian man. Verse 34 says, the eunuch replied to Philip, I ask you, who is the prophet saying this about himself or another person? Again, he's asking about the book of Isaiah. So Philip proceeded to tell him the good news about Jesus, beginning from that scripture. As they were traveling down the road, they came to some water. The eunuch said, look, there's water. What would keep me from being baptized? And Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he replied, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Then he ordered the chariot to stop, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. So you get the picture. They, they come across, it's either a stream or a lake or a river, but it's a body of water that they can walk down into. They walk down into it. So you get this picture like they're like knee deep or waist deep. I mean, they are in the water and then in the water, he baptizes him, meaning he dunks him. He puts him under the water. He brings him back up. So that's what baptism literally is. It is immersion in water. But what about figuratively? What is it figuratively? The New Testament teaches that baptism is not primarily about the physical, literal act, although that is very important as we're going to see. But it's more importantly about the meaning behind the act. So question number two, what does baptism mean? What is it, but what does it mean? The answer to this question actually underscores the importance of the mode of baptism. So the mode, that's the how. How do you baptize? Do you immerse in water? Do you sprinkle? Do you shoot somebody with a hose? What, what is the mechanism? That's the mode. But the mode is connected to the why. The mode and the meaning. So the mode is the how, the meaning is the why. Why do we baptize people? And those two things, the mode and the meaning, they're inseparably connected. And so at our church, we are, we are sticklers about the mode. The mode matters. Uh, at Walnut Creek Church, we practice baptism by immersion only, and here's why. Look at Romans chapter 6. Romans 6 verse 1. So Paul in Romans has just got done explaining a lot of the mechanics of the gospel. 
And he's explaining how Jesus died on the cross to make atonement for sin. So if you're in Christ by faith, you are totally free from sin. All of your sin that is ingrained in your nature because of Adam, the first man who sinned the first time, he said, all of that has changed. You're free, you're righteous, you're holy in Christ. And now he comes to chapter 6, verse 1, and he asks a question. He says, what should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? It's a rhetorical question. So he's just got done hammering the concept of grace, which is just this. You don't do anything. You don't make yourself righteous. You don't cleanse yourself from sin. It's something done to you by God. It's a free gift of grace. But he says, if that's the case, should we just go around sinning? It's just, hey, I got, I got a get-out-of-jail-free card. I'm going to do me. He says, no way. Of course you shouldn't do that. Verse 2, absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Okay, so there's a lot there. Let's break this down. First thing Paul is saying is this. Baptism symbolically unites you to the death and burial of Jesus. This is the first thing it means. It unites you to the death and burial of Jesus. Verse 4, Therefore we were buried with him by baptism into death. Now, this begs the question, why would anybody want to identify with the death of Jesus? Jesus died by Roman crucifixion, which was not only horrific, it was modern historians still believe that Roman crucifixion is probably the worst form of torture invented by humanity. It's like one of the worst possible ways you could die. So not only is it gruesome and painful, it was shameful to be crucified. It, it was not just, we're going to inflict pain on you, but it's, we're going to publicly shame you. We're going to hang you naked in front of the whole city so they can watch you suffer. Why would anybody want to identify with the death of Jesus? Why would anybody look at his betrayal and torture and murder and say, I'm with him? And not only am I with him, I want to really identify myself with his death. Because that's what you're doing in baptism. Paul explains, verse 6, For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless, so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin, since a person who has died is freed from sin. So the good news, the good news of the gospel is that on the cross, Jesus, the perfect eternal, sinless Son of God died for you. He, he went to the cross because of your sin. That's the idea. Like, you put him there. On the cross, Jesus took the penalty that is aimed at every person because of their sin. He had no sin of his own. And God, the Father, in His holiness, in His justice, as the perfect judge of the world, He looks at sin in every person's heart, and He says, you're guilty. 
And because he's just, you must be punished. Guilty people must be punished for their crimes. And so Jesus on the cross, he became guilty in your place. He took the punishment of God the Father on himself so that you don't have to. He absorbed the wrath of God for you. He served as your substitute, which means anybody who will trust in him, anybody who looks to the cross and says, that's my only chance. That's my only hope of escaping judgment. That's my only hope to escape the punishment and the wrath of God. Anybody who's that's their heart goes free. Your sin's taken care of. It's washed clean. You're no longer guilty. You're no longer enslaved to it. God forgives you, not because you deserve his forgiveness, but because of what Jesus did. And so when you go under the water, what Paul is saying is that when you go under the water, you're making a point with your action. You're saying, my sin is gone. I'm set free. I'm innocent. I'm righteous. I'm forgiven. And even though you're not going to be perfect, your mind is set towards abandoning a life of of sin. You're saying, I'm not going to run towards sin anymore. That's what it means to be united with the death and burial of Jesus. You're saying, I'm done with sin, both its penalty and its claim on my life. That's the first thing. Baptism symbolically unites you to the death and burial of Jesus. Next, Paul says, baptism symbolically unites you to the new life in Jesus. So you go under the water, but you don't stay there. Human beings, we breathe oxygen. So you, you got to come back up out of the water. You're immersed, you come back up. And Paul says this, verse 4, Therefore we were buried with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. Jesus came up from the grave, you come up out of the water. And what this represents in baptism is that as a Christian, you begin a brand new life. It's amazing. When a person becomes a Christian, when you're born again, when your sins are forgiven, the Spirit of God comes and lives in you. And what God's Spirit does is He gives you new desires. Every person you talk to who has been born again, they will tell you some version of this. My desires changed. Things I wanted to do before, I don't want to do them anymore. And even though I'm, I, I still struggle and I'm, I'm tempted sometimes, and I even fail sometimes, that's not what I want. That's not what I'm pursuing. You get new desires. You get new affections. You get new priorities, new values. God gives you eternal meaning and purpose and joy. God gives you strength through His Spirit to live an entirely different life. Paul says with very similar language in the book of Galatians, he's making a different point, but he says this in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. Had Paul literally been crucified with Christ? No. I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Now, he's not talking explicitly about baptism, but he's talking about the same thing that baptism symbolizes. Paul says, my life is over. I don't do what I want to do. I don't pursue the things that I naturally would have pursued. Christ lives in me and through me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old things have passed away. So you didn't literally physically die, 
But your, your old way of life died. Your old set of values died. Your old set of affections and priorities died. And look, new things have come. Finally, Paul says baptism symbolically unites you to the resurrection of Jesus. Verse 5, for if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. So the promise of the gospel is not just for this life. It's also for the next life. So we have new life in Christ now, and we have eternal life in heaven. And that's amazing. That is incredible to me. Paul says in Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is coming back. He ascended, but he's coming back. And when he does, he says in verse 21, he will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. New bodies in a new world. Perfect paradise. No sin, no pain, no temptation forever. That's the promise of the gospel. And that's what baptism Means. I'll give you a quick statement to kind of summarize this. <clears throat> what does baptism mean? In the physical act of baptism, you identify with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It serves as a symbol of your death to your past in sin, your present life in Christ, and your future resurrection into glory. That's what baptism means. Now, I want to point out kind of as an aside, some of you maybe have a Catholic background. Um, and, and if you do, I need to be very clear, baptism cannot and does not save you. So baptism is not necessary for the atonement of sin. Baptism doesn't make a person a Christian. Baptism doesn't mean, okay, now you get to go to heaven when you die. That's not the way that it works. You think about the thief on the cross. As Jesus is hanging there, there's a thief on his left and a thief on his right. And one of them says, basically, Jesus, will you save me? I believe in you. You must be the son of God. And what does Jesus say to him? He says, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. The guy wasn't able to be baptized. He just simply believed that Jesus was dying in his place. So baptism does not save you. It cannot save you. It does nothing to cleanse a person from sin. Only the blood of Jesus does that. But baptism is a symbol that shows what happens spiritually and internally when a person is saved. So it's not that it's not important. It's very important, as we're going to see, but it doesn't save you. It's not a requirement for salvation. Okay, number three, question three, who is baptism for? We've talked about what it is. We've talked about what it means. Who's it for? Who should be baptized? We get a very clear answer to this question in Acts chapter two. So in Acts two, this is shortly after the resurrection of Jesus. He's ascended into heaven. And Peter, the apostle Peter, is leading the church in Jerusalem. He's the, the person that Jesus has left in charge. And he is preaching the message of the gospel to a massive crowd, thousands and thousands of people. They're in the city of Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, which is a Jewish celebration. And so you have an audience almost entirely of Jews and entirely of people who are not believers. These are not people who believe Jesus is the Messiah. These are not people who follow the teachings of Jesus. In fact, many of them utterly and outright rejected him. They said, he's not the Messiah. He's not the son of God. That's heresy. Kill him. 
And so Jesus is, or I'm sorry, Peter is preaching to this audience. And he says, Jesus, no, Jesus is the Messiah. He did die for you. He is the Son of God. He is resurrected. And you need to believe in him. And here's how he closes this message. Verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When they heard this, they came under deep conviction and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what must we do? Repent, Peter said to them, and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he testified and strongly urged them, saying, be saved from this corrupt generation. So, those who accepted his message were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 people were added to them. So what's the answer? Who is baptism for? Those who have accepted the message of the gospel. It's it's for people who have believed. They've repented. They've said, I'm a sinner. I'm guilty. I deserve God's punishment in hell. And Jesus saved me. Jesus died in my place. Jesus is God incarnate. He's the perfect, eternal Son of God. And He died for me, to cleanse me, to forgive me. The person who believes that should be baptized. And in the Bible, baptism always comes after belief in Jesus, never before. Baptism always comes after repentance, never before. It comes after salvation, not before. This is why we don't believe the church is to practice infant baptism. Because babies can't believe the gospel. They can't understand the gospel. They can't repent of sin and trust the Lord Jesus. Now, some some churches will baptize babies because they believe it actually cleanses them from sin and saves them. We've already talked about that. That is heresy. That's actually anti-gospel. So you can't believe that and embrace the true gospel in the New Testament. I was at a funeral a number of years ago, and best of my knowledge, this person did not even believe that God existed. But it was a Catholic funeral, and the priest was adamant that we know this person is in heaven because she was baptized as an infant. So so that position is anti-gospel, it's heretical. But there are some churches that believe baptism of infants is the sign of the new covenant, like circumcision was the sign of the old covenant. So we just got done studying the book of Genesis. And in Genesis, God gives Abraham the sign of circumcision. He says, you're to circumcise who? Everyone, but babies. You circumcise babies on the eighth day to signify that they are a part of the covenant people of God. Now, circumcision didn't save a person, but it was was a symbol, a sign of the old covenant. And so some Christians believe that baptism is the sign of the new covenant, and so we should baptize babies when they're born. And that's not heresy. So as long as they're, they're not saying this doesn't save a person, it's just something that we do to indicate that they are a part of the people of God. Not heresy, but it's still wrong. <laughs> we shouldn't do that because you don't see any command in the scripture to do this. You don't see anywhere in the scripture where Christians were baptizing infants. It's not described. It's not practiced anywhere. In fact, what we see 
Verse 19 of Matthew 28. This is what Jesus says. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. So who are we to baptize? Disciples. You baptize disciples, and you can't make disciples of non-Christians. Now, parents should have an eye to disciple their kids. As parents, it is one of the most important responsibilities God has given you if you're Christian parents is to disciple your children. But that is a long game. <laughs> okay, your, your kids, over year after year, they need the training and instruction of the Lord. They need to hear the gospel. And at some point, we're praying and hoping that God will save our kids, that they will repent and believe. But it doesn't happen when they're two weeks old. I can promise you that. That's not when they repent and believe. That's not when they begin to become disciples of Jesus. So we baptize disciples who are believers in Jesus. So it's for believers only, and baptism is for all believers. So baptism is for believers only, but it's also for all believers. There are no loopholes for Christians. If you're a Christian, Jesus says you must be baptized. It's not optional, which raises our last question. Number four, why is baptism so important? So we know what it is. We know what it means. We know who it's for, but why is, it so, why is there so much emphasis? Why is this the first thing Jesus says, go make disciples? Don't forget to baptize them. That's like step one. Peter, when 3,000 people get saved, what should we do? First thing, be baptized. That's the first thing you need to do. Why is it so important? Well, the most obvious answer is because God commands it. Jesus says it, therefore we should do it. Jesus was baptized. Jesus made sure all of his followers were baptized. And then Jesus says to his followers, you go baptize other people who believe the gospel because of your witness. So if God commands it, we should do it. If God commands it, it's important. But that doesn't really answer the question, why? Okay, so God commands it. He emphasizes it over and over. But why? Why is this one of the first things Jesus commanded the church to do? Why is it the first thing that Peter says, 3,000 people who are converted at Pentecost, why is this the first thing they should do? The Bible actually doesn't answer that question. (laughs) There's no explicit text that says, oh, and by the way, this is why it's so important. Now, I think we can infer some things, but I'm going to tell you what I think. This is not the only reason, but this is an important reason. Baptism is really important because talk is cheap. Again, this is not thus saith the Lord. This is is my opinion. And I, I think you can infer this from so much of the New Testament. Talk is cheap. The beauty of the gospel is you don't do anything to earn it. It's a free gift of grace. You do nothing. You simply receive what God has done to you and for you. And what you get in the gospel is mind-blowing. You get forgiveness. You get righteousness. You get the Spirit of God. You get relationship, union with God as His adopted son or daughter. You get eternal life. You get an inheritance in His kingdom I don't even know all that that means. (laughs) If you're a Christian, you are wealthier than anybody else in the universe because you have an inheritance in God's kingdom. It's eternal. It's kept in heaven for you. And all of it is free. You don't get any of that because you're awesome, because you're better than other people, because you're nicer or you're more honest or you're hardworking or you have sort of uh, decoded the truth from the scriptures. You get it as a free gift. You receive it in faith by believing in Jesus. 
It's amazing. But what that means is that that belief, that faith, it's internal. It's not external. It's not like press these buttons, follow these steps, say this prayer, magic words, now you're Christian. That's not the way it works. It's internal and it's invisible. It's something that happens inside of you, in your soul, in your mind, in your heart. So only God can see it and you can see it. And God can see it a lot better than you can. But I can't see it. I I can't see what's going on in your heart. You can't see what's going on in my heart. And what that means is that it's easy to say I'm a Christian. I believe Jesus died on the cross to pay for my sins. Hallelujah. I've been forgiven. I've been set free. Isn't it amazing? It's easy to say that. But how do the people around you know that that's what's actually in your heart? How do you even know that you actually believe that? It's not just an intellectual concept that you understand. Well, Jesus says in John 14, 21, the one who has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. So here's a really important concept. If you want to understand why is baptism so important, here's the thing that you need to know about it. Baptism is a very public and dramatic declaration of commitment to Christ. That's what it is. It's public and it's dramatic, meaning it's kind of weird. (laughs) It's a little bit of a weird thing to do. And it's less weird now because we live in a culture that is still fairly Christian, especially in the Midwest. But 2,000 years ago, it was really weird. Really weird. Baptism in the nation of Israel is what Gentiles did if they wanted to be grafted in or identified with the people of God. And what it, what it represented was, I am a dirty, ritually unclean Gentile. So I need to be cleansed of my Gentileness so I can participate in Judaism. And baptism was a command at first for Jews. For a Jew to be baptized like a Gentile was so ridiculous. It was so countercultural. So it was this very public, very dramatic declaration of commitment to Christ. It's like in a small way, it's not, in a small way you're putting your money where your mouth is. I'm with Jesus, prove it. <laughs> That's the idea. It's not a work that saves you, but it's like, okay, demonstrate that. It's kind of like a wedding ring. So a wedding ring, I wear a wedding ring, doesn't make me married. The other day, my daughter asked me, can I wear a ring on the finger that you wear for your wedding ring? And I said, of course you can. It's, you know, and she's five. And she said, oh, okay, because she understands. It's solemn. There's, there's a weightiness to what this represents, but it doesn't make you married. But imagine if I told my wife, which I try to, But if I just told her every day, babe, I love you so much. I'm crazy about you. I love you. I'm so committed to you. I'm so devoted to our marriage. I'm just, I'm so madly in love with you. It's crazy. But listen, I don't really want to wear a wedding ring. And the reason I want to wear a wedding ring is because I don't want anybody else to know how much I love you. Like that's just between me and you. It's private. It's kind of embarrassing. What would you think about my declaration of love to her? (laughs) You would say, talk is cheap, buddy prove it. And if I really love her that much, I should declare that as loudly and as often as possible to the world around me. And a wedding ring is like the least I can do. That's the first most basic step. And baptism is like that. 
This is why at our church, believer's baptism is a requirement for church membership. We're going to get into this in week three. But membership at its foundation is is about looking at each other and saying, these people are Christians. I can affirm these people's profession of faith. And in the Bible, baptism is the lowest threshold of obedience for a credible profession of faith. I think if you were to talk to a New Testament Christian in the first century and you were to say, hey, you know, I'm, I'm a Christian, I believe, but like, I just am not very comfortable with baptism. I'm not ready for that. They would look at you and be like, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, that's not how this works. It, it is the lowest threshold of obedience for a credible profession of faith in the Bible. And so just to close, we have one point of application. Can you guess what it is? Get baptized. That's the application. Get baptized. Some of you here this morning, you understand the gospel, you've repented of sin, you're trusting Jesus to save you, and you haven't been baptized. And I don't know why that is. There's a multitude of reasons that could be. It may be that you're a brand new Christian. Maybe you didn't even know that baptism was a command. That's, that's great. Now you know. Get baptized. Now, if you're not a Christian, baptism is not for you. You need to consider the gospel. God has offered to save you in Christ. You need to start there. But once you believe, the next step is to get baptized. Now, maybe you were baptized as a baby. And so, you, you know, your whole life, you've been thinking, well, I've already obeyed this because my parents sort of did it for me. I got baptized as a baby. But babies cannot obey. That's not a decision that you made. And so I would say, if you've been saved as an adult, as an adolescent, you put your faith in Christ, but you were baptized only as a baby, doesn't count. You need to get baptized. Now, uh, maybe you were baptized by immersion as an adult, but you weren't actually a Christian yet. This is not as common, but it does happen. You were baptized as an adult, but you're looking back, you're like, man, I didn't really understand what I was doing there. Like, I don't think I actually was born again at that time, and now you are, then you need to get baptized. Now, I want to be clear, if you are a Christian and you've had a tough year, or a tough five years, you've been far from God, you've been wandering, you've been living in disobedience, but you were baptized by immersion as a believer, and you, you just you want to do it again as a, as a way to rededicate your life or just kind of like generate some new enthusiasm, you should not be baptized. Baptism happens one time. It, it's, it's a one-time event in the life of a Christian. You do it once, once only. Now, some reasons not to get baptized. Don't get baptized because your friends are doing it. Do not get baptized because your parents want you to. Do not get baptized because you want to be a member. Do not get baptized because your pastor is talking about it. My pastor said to get baptized. I guess I should get baptized. That's not the reason you should do it. Only get baptized because you're serious about obeying Jesus. You need to wrestle with this with the Lord. You need to decide, am I actually convinced that God wants me to do this? I'm convinced of it, but you have to wrestle with that for yourself. So if you're a Christian, if you've been born again, you haven't been baptized, then I would encourage you, ask the same question the Ethiopian asks. He says, what would keep me from getting baptized? And the answer is nothing. We have a horse trough. We bring it right up here on stage. Crisp, cool, balmy, 50-degree water. (laughs) A joker is cold. We'll baptize you. We'd, we'd love to walk you through that. Now, if you, just, if you have more questions you need to process, please grab me. Uh, grab somebody that you, you know is a Christian and, and knows about this, and, and we want to discuss it with you. But that would be my encouragement to you. If you haven't been baptized, get baptized. Wrestle through this 
with the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this incredible gift of baptism, God. I just think about what an amazing thing. We were not there to see the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus physically. And you've given us this incredible gift that every time a person is baptized, we get to see a picture of it, a picture of the gospel. We get to see a picture, a little window into what is happening in a person's soul, that they're dying to sin in their old way of life, and they're being resurrected to new life in Christ, and they will be resurrected in glory for eternity. And that should make our souls sing. God, I pray that we'd be a church that prizes, that loves to baptize people. We'd be a church that aims at communicating the message of the gospel, seeing people converted to faith in Christ and baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything you've commanded. God, I thank you so much for the baptisms we've seen just in the last several months this year in our church, and I pray for many more. God, I pray that we would have a heart as a church to be a witness to people in our community about Jesus, and you'd save them, and we'd baptize them. We love you, God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.